Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is New Books in Science Fiction, where you can hear authors of science and speculative fiction talk about their new books. Today I'm talking to Malka Older, author of Infomocracy, her debut political thriller from 2016, and its sequel, Null States, which comes out this month, September 2017. Infomocracy was a Locus Award finalist for Best First Novel, and Olda herself was a Campbell Award finalist. She also has more than a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development, helping communities respond to emergencies and natural disasters in places around the world, including Sri Lanka, Darfur, and Japan. Malka, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. I thought we could kind of talk about your two books together since they're set in the same world and Null States flows directly from Infomocracy. Absolutely. And I think one of the um, one of the remarkable features about the world you've created is that it's neither a dystopia nor a utopia, but basically an earth that um, has definitely made progress towards peace and harmony, but still has some kinks to work out. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you see it that way, because that was pretty important for me as I was developing and then writing this world was to have something that was that was kind of nuanced that didn't have that wasn't held up there as the, you know, ideal and all be all this is the system we are going for, because I don't think that really exists. But also that wasn't aiming to create a dire post apocalyptic setting either. Um, it's actually kind of a pet peeve of mine. I think that the the I, the word dystopia is thrown around a little bit cavalierly these days that a lot of things are being called dystopias that, to, in my way of thinking about it, don't quite reach the standard I would set for something just really impossibly awful, as in the opposite of utopia, impossibly good. Um, so for me, you know, it was I wanted to show something that, I, you know, some ideas that I've been thinking about that I thought would improve things in ser- some ways. But I was also very conscious that they could make some some things worse, that they certainly would improve everything. Um, And also, you know, for me, I think that, as I said before, there is no perfect system. We're not aiming to find some system that will work for every case and every country and every group of people, and then we're done. I think what's really important is the process and the struggle. And so for me, what's really hopeful about the books are the characters and the way the characters... uh, struggle to to try and improve their world, even if it's in a very incremental way. Well, I would say what really strikes me is that uh, it's all very practical. You know, the the world you create, first of all, seems very plausible because it doesn't seem that far ahead into the future. So you're taking things that we're more or less familiar with, although maybe not in an academic, like fully understanding it way, but things like democracy, and you've created something called micro-democracy. And then you've created this... uh, overseeing administration that that administers these micro-democracies around the world. And it kind of reminds 
me of Google, which I guess was the intention, but it's it's just the new and improved Google because it's you know it's dedicated to pursuing truth instead of profit. I guess was is the message I was getting, but but I thought maybe you could just fill listeners in who haven't read uh, Infomocracy and and since Null states uh, is. Well, as we're recording it, it hasn't come out yet, but it's going to come out this month. Um, maybe you could just fill them, fill people in a little bit on some of these concepts, like uh, micro democracy and um, and this agency that's like Google called Information. Sure. So the world it's set about fifty or sixty years in the future, and the idea behind micro democracy is that the world as we live in it now, we're we're very proud of what we've achieved with democracy as we should be to a point, uh, although there's a long way still to go, I think. Um, but, you know, you have a lot of countries that are very large with very diverse populations. And one thing that democracy really struggles with is how to balance these competing interests and not end up being an oppression of the minority by the majority. Uh, and there are various ways that countries have worked towards dealing with this conundrum um, through different types of voting, different types of representation on different types of bodies, parliamentary, legislative. Um, so it's certainly something that I think is in process and, and is not something we, we have to despair of in democracy yet. But I was interested in looking at one particular way of addressing it, which was to have much smaller jurisdictions. So in, in the micro-democracy that I envision in these books, the basic unit of government is a group of 100,000 people, give or take, um, who live in the same geographic area. So in a crowded city, we're talking about, you know, a neighborhood, maybe even less than that, a couple of blocks in a very uh, dense, built-up city. In a rural area, it could be hundreds of square miles even to get 100,000 people. Um, so the important thing is the population, not the geography, because I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice in the world now, being so focused on geographic size of countries, given that our our global economy now really isn't so linked to that. So you have these, these units of 100,000 people, and each unit can vote for any government they wants from anywhere in the world, meaning someone living in New York City could vote to be a part of a government that is now what we would associate with the government of Norway, maybe inspired by that, and they've taken some of their policies, and that's what that group of 100,000 people, or the majority of them in any case, decide that's how they want to live their lives. Oh, I'm sure the, the Upper West Side would definitely go with Norway. It could happen. Yeah, it could happen. totally. And, you know, maybe next door there's a group that has, uh, a government that has based itself around the principles of the Chabad. Um, and maybe next door to that there's a group that's based itself around the principles of Rastafarianism. And maybe next door to that there's a group that's all about Dominican pride. And you can just move across the street, like if then if another sentinel, because each of these uh, micro democracies are called sentinels, uh, can you just move across the street and you're in a new country, so to speak? Or does each one of them have its own rules about citizenship, or is it like the the current eurozone? Each one of them has its own rules, and so they can have they they can make their decisions on how they allow immigration and people entering and leaving. But because this the the system is based around population. Uh, for most of the governments and most of the countries, immigration is seen as a good thing because let's say you hold, you know, five blocks in Manhattan, which have roughly 100,000 people, and people love your government and they start moving in. The next time they look at, with, at redrawing the Sentinels, if you have 200,000 people or close to in those same five blocks, you suddenly hold two Sentinels instead of one. 
So the, the way the incentives are set up, even though it's not required to have open immigration policies, it's much more likely. Makes sense. Good. Yeah. Make, just sort of make a natural incentive rather than forcing people to uh, have follow, you know, strict rules. Yeah. And so I should also say, you know, there are a lot of different governments and the conception I've come up with. It's something like around 2000 different governments in the world. Many of them don't try to grow or try to become the largest government in the world. They just focus on local issues and that's what they do. And they're, they're very knowledgeable in those areas. And um, maybe they're really focused on a specific population and they're not looking for other people to join them because that's they really want to just address the interests and figure out the best form of government for those people, whether it's, you know, something that's about a, a cultural heritage or a religion or just uh, a hobby that people like. There's one government in the book um, that's all about sort of, it's called um, Cho Kawai, which is so cute, very, very cute in Japanese. And it's all about um, characters and cosplay. And um, so there, there are different ways that people could come together and then design their government, which means tax structures and pub public policy and uh education and all the different things that governments decide, design those to, to work with that group of people. Um, and there are other governments that do try to become global powers. Uh, there are some governments that are mainly designed and run by conglomerations of corporations. So obviously they have certain interests in the kinds of policies and tax structures that they want in their government. And as large corporations, they have ways to incentivize people to vote for their government. So, you know, they can offer some of their products very cheaply, for example. Um, there's some question in the second book, particularly about how the financial walls between the corporation side and the government side, how strong those, those walls are, for example. So there's a, there's a wide variety of different governments. I mean, when I was designing this, one of the things I was thinking about was just frustration at the two-party system uh, in the US and just wanting to have a lot of choice. Um, and it's fun also to think about the different kinds of government that people could come up with. Um, and as someone with a, a certain amount of political science and international relations background, it's also very tempting to think of a world in which we could really look at how different types of government structures play out in practice and start to draw conclusions about, you know, what, what different policies do in, in close comparison. But there are some practical uh, obstacles to having one organization overseeing sentinels that are spread all around the world, aren't there, if they're not bordering each other? Sure. Um, so there are some problems with that, although I, I would note that we do have governments that function like this now in our world. Um, we can look at the examples of things like Gibraltar, which belongs to England, even though it's not attached. Right, <laughs> we can look at true. Alaska. Alaska is not attached to the the rest of the United States or Hawaii, um, and yet nobody questions the fact that they're under the same government. Uh, the Malvinas or the Falkland Islands, as they're known, uh, France's overseas dominions. Um, France holds La Réunion, for example, which is pretty far away uh, and pretty different in terms of, you know, <laughs> the climate, the economics, everything about it. And yet they're under the same government and they're considered in those, you know, in those countries and, and in the way that this is, that this is thought about in current geopolitics, you know, they're, they're considered absolutely part of the same country. They're under the same government. There's, there's no difference in right, theory. Right. Um, and so, so this actually happens. Um, but it's certainly at the scale that I'm talking about, it's certainly challenging. So one of the ways this is managed is with 
information, the system that you, the, the organization that you mentioned. And you said it's, it's, it seems a lot like Google, which it, which it is. It's kind of a cross between Google and the United Nations because it has a, a, you know, a very technical aspect and um, certainly search and communications and a lot of things that we think of as Google are, are all part of it. Um, but it also has a kind of, as you said, oversight. It's an international organization. It kind of considers itself above and apart from the fray of governments, and yet just like the UN and just like Google for that matter, it does, of course, because it has power uh, through its functions, it does, of course, get involved. Um, it's impossible to avoid that. The thing people seem to most rely on it for on a, on a sort of daily moment-to-moment basis is as a source of what seems to be like true information, if there really is anything that one could could be considered true, but kind of like the Snopes website, like yeah. it, it'll tell you if something you're hearing in the moment, someone's giving a speech and the annotations are, are appearing before people's eyes, I guess, because they have, you know, lenses or something that give them the information they need in the moment to give context, to verify, uh, which is kind of amazing given uh, the world we're in now where anything is true or anything is fake news, you know, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. Um, And again, this is, you know, this came out of frustration. I wrote it quite a bit before this last election, but um, the 2012 election, the 2008 election, even going to the 2004 election and looking at the the swift voting phenomenon. um, This this has been going on. This fake news problem has been going on. I think it's been going on back, you know, as far as we can trace history or politics, we can probably find some examples of it. But obviously, you know, it it has um, developed and and change to adapt to our, our current systems of, of information use. And so when I was writing it, you know, one of the things that I was really looking for, one of the things that I really just wanted at, at that point of time was a, a kind of authority that could say, you know, at a minimum, this fact is what happened. You can d- debate the interpretations, you can debate what it means and which way it makes you want to vote. But these are the things we know. Here's the data about the things that we aren't sure of that you can then decide how you interpret the data. And because, you know, the, the problem that we have now, uh, both in the U.S. and in many other countries, is it's not that the information isn't available, right? The information is there. There are authorities on, on a lot of different things, and um, there are ways to find out about things that happened in history, the things that happened in recent history, Um there's scientific papers that are peer reviewed and and so on. Um, So the data is there, the information is there. The problem is, you know, getting people to first see it and secondly, accept it. And so what information does that's, that's a little different from Google or Wikipedia as we have them now is that it's quite aggressive in going out and putting information in front of people's faces. As you say, it it annotates things, whether people like it or not. Um, When there are political debates going on, it doesn't allow for football matches to be shown. And the political debates themselves are audio only to avoid people getting distracted by the appearances of, of um, some of the government spokespeople. Uh, and in the in information, in infomocracy particularly, you see this mainly around uh, the, the political election, but it also uh, happens around things like advertising claims. Um, and some of the sort of origin story for information goes back to civil suits against false advertising. There's a scene in Null States where 
the main character is upset that the food in a restaurant in you know a small sentinel rural i guess more more backward although maybe that's too judgmental a term let's say remote remote thank you remote the 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 pictures uh, don't do not correspond accurately to the way the food is actually presented and she files a a complaint yeah and for her it's no big deal you know this is this is a thing that happens when people are getting used to the fact that they're advertising and their speech will be will be policed in this way um but they they take it a bit differently and you know just to just to pick up on on that term used backwards there is a there's another scene in that book in that same location where you know the the main character comes from outside does feel like she's gone into the past and someone says to her well yeah it could be the past or it could also be the future Since information is ultimately, I mean, the agency information, capital I information, is run ultimately by people, and people are still going to be have flaws and biases, is there, won't there always be doubts about even what this authoritative and maybe credible for the most part, but you might, you might always have doubts, oh, they have an agenda? I mean, that is kind of what you're portraying in null states in this remote sentinel, which is just being introduced to micro-democracy, there is suspicion of, of information and mistrust, and they think they do have an agenda. And, you know, maybe some of the individuals do, maybe they don't. I just wonder uh, what your thoughts are about that. Absolutely. It's, it's a really important dynamic in, in the book, in both books. Um, information has a couple of, of big problems. Uh, one problem is, despite everything they do to try and get people to pay attention to kind of the right data or uh, to make sure that people are seeing the things that are relevant to them as they're making important decisions about their life and their money. They do all these things to, to try and get people to pay attention and still, you know, people have other things on their mind. Uh, and a lot of people don't appreciate having annotations thrown up inside of their face and, and really don't appreciate not being able to watch football games whenever there's a political debate on. Um, and so you know, there's there's this one sense where they're they're sort of very earnest and and really trying hard, and uh, you know, there's they're not going to the point of peeling people's eyelashes back to force them to watch, and so there's a lot of people who just aren't that interested, um, and so that's one of the the kind of contradictions that's faced by this organization, um, and because that's their raison d'être, you know, they're supposed to be. Uh, really making sure that people are making informed choices. And it turns out that even really shoving that information in front of their eyes is, is not always enough. And the other problem is that even though they feel like they've done a, a pretty responsible job, they try to kind of um, self-police and be accountable and be as neutral as they can, and they try to kind of audit themselves in ways to make clear where they might not be perfectly neutral and so on. Despite all of this, they're pretty widely hated. <laughs> and a lot of characters spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, why is this, is it avoidable or is it just inevitable? Is it because we have a lot of power? Is it because of the way we work? Um, is it, you know, just because people don't like being told what to pay attention to? Um, should we try to be slicker like some of the, the corporations are in their advertising? Should we try to be... Um, you know, throw out more data about everything we do so that it's very clear how we're being transparent and, and so on. So that's, you know, that's the other thing that they that they really struggle with um, throughout the books. That kind of leads into my, my next question. And I'm wondering 
if that observation you have that people are resistant to this authority coming in from the outside who may know more and have more resources, if that in any way parallels experiences you've had as someone in your career working on development issues, working in in remote or distressed countries around the world, I wonder, and I'm fascinated by the fact that you have a career which has brought you, you know, into into all these situations. I mean, natural disasters and places where, you know, politics are different, where people are struggling for uh, various reasons. I mean, obviously here in the United States, we have plenty of issues, as you've already mentioned. But I wonder how uh, your work, if, if, if you sometimes feel like you are representing in your work, some something like an information again, capital I like agency, and and how you draw on your your personal experience to to write your fiction. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's a really uh, fraught dynamic in aid and development work uh, in general, and it's something that comes up a lot among in sort of um, both practitioner circles where people talk about it, and then also a little bit in academic circles as well. Um, particularly around the idea of the expert, you know, the expert who comes in from outside and tells people what to do and and how to fix things and supposedly and, and so on. And, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of undertones of the histories of colonialism, of um, missionary efforts. I mean, there's a lot of uncomfortable resonances with aid and development work. Um, and so, you know, it's something that it's, it's really important to be aware of uh, for people who are working in it. I certainly felt everywhere that I've worked, <laughs> I certainly felt that I was learning more and, and usually getting a lot more from every encounter than I was able to give. Because, you know, when you are dropped into, immersed into a completely different situation, um, whether it's because it's you know, culturally different, linguistically different, or because it's an emergency situation and that's different, you're, you're learning a lot. Um, and it's really hard for any amount of, of school learning to match that. Um, although there's often things that you can contribute. Uh, as you work more, you have more experience. And just having the comparison among different places, you know, saying, well, I worked an emergency somewhere else that was similar in this way and different in this way, and that gives me an idea. That can be very useful. Um, but it's still never going to touch uh, the knowledge that the locals have. And so, you know, I, I did feel like I was being in some way, you know, that there was something kind of marginally useful about what I was doing or I wouldn't have kept doing it. But I also certainly felt like I was, I was getting a lot more out of it than I could, than I was able to give. Um, so, so yes, that's something that's definitely there in, underline um, a lot of the writing about about information and I think you know there's there's it's a conundrum for people who want to try to uh, to make the world better and for people who care about you know even if you're not going to a foreign country even if you're working in your own space um, trying to get people to care about the things that you care about because you think that they will affect their lives it's it's a really fine line between kind of organizing and paternalism uh, where you're telling people what to think in what way they should vote. And I think that that's a fascinating tension in democracy. Uh, so it was something that I was really interested in exploring. Well, along those lines, I wonder what, what you've seen or, or, or done that has been the most dramatic for you in terms of a transformation, in terms of seeing something 
grow or change in anywhere around the world, like where you've seen a new attitude or a new approach introduced and it's actually uh, taken root? Do you have any, any anything that comes to mind? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's it's a good question, but it's also a hard one to pick because, I mean, there's an awful lot of, of kind of different variations on examples of that. Um, one thing that I could maybe talk about, I don't know if this is exactly what you're getting at, but to, to give an idea, you know, one thing that I've done is because I've worked in both um, development and emergency work. So I've been in places that are either kind of uh, long-term slow emergencies or places where it's a, a post-conflict thing or a chronic poverty, poverty thing uh, where you're working on various programs to try and improve things there. And, and then switching to emergency um, when something happens. Uh, so, you know, Darfur is technically an emergency job, but a lot of it feels like development and then something will happen uh, in the conflict and you're back in emergency mode or working in Indonesia where it was certainly a development situation, but they, they have an awful lot of um, natural hazards. So you're pretty much guaranteed to have to deal with an emergency at some point or another. And so for me, what can be very interesting is that switch of mindset. Um, working with people who are used to working with working on development and, and switching into emergency mode or, or vice versa. When you have a bunch of emergency people suddenly flood into the country and uh, both in terms of how they interact with the long-term people there. And also eventually as the emergency starts, uh, starts fading and you need to, to um, align it and, and smooth it into development work. Um, so having those two mindsets and that was something that I was, interested in in uh, working into the books so uh infomocracy is much more an emergency paced book uh, and there is an emergency in it there's a, a an earthquake um that's quite devastating and um and the the whole pace of the political campaign is kind of based around that emergency experience whereas in all states I, I wanted to have a little bit more of the development feel to it so there's a little bit longer that you spend in some of the locations it's um, a little bit more considered in, in some of these uh, fraught uh, issues between outsiders and locals, which is, is something that is definitely there in emergencies, but it tends to get short shrift because there's so much else going on. Um, so, yeah, I was quite interested to, to look at those different dynamics. And are you still out in the field now? I know you're getting a PhD. Is it, I, I mean, I, how do you combine your writing with? you know, having to travel to an emergency or, you know, uh, I guess maybe, I don't know how long you usually stay in a place, but when I write, uh, I kind of like a predictable schedule, but it sounds like maybe you enjoy the un unpredictability. <laughs> I do. I haven't done emergencies in a while. The last one I was in was um, Mali in 2012 before I started my PhD. I've done some other um, either development or or disaster risk reduction, which is kind of the like pre-emergency um, work since then. So I've been on a couple of deployments um, to the Solomon Islands, Ecuador, Georgia, nothing too recently because I have been um, focusing more on, on the books and, and my dissertation, which is, <laughs> really needs to get done soon um, recently. So, uh, but I try to, as much as possible, keep my hand in with some remote work when I can, um, and just kind of stay aware of what's going on in the field, because it is a field that I really um, enjoy working on. And, and a lot of my academic research is is closely related to it. I, the, my thesis research is on um, how governments do, do emergency response. 
but I've done some kind of side papers on on NGO work and emergency response. And you know, there's I think it's it's something that it's the kind of work that we we continue to need and we continue to need to do better. And there's a lot of very interesting issues that can also tell us things. You know, from looking at the way things go in an emergency and the way people deal with an emergency, the way organizations and governments manage emergencies, you can learn a lot about what they're doing in non-emergency times as well. So I find it pretty fascinating. I wanted to talk about something else, actually, the idea of narrative disorder, which one of your main characters, and I'm, I may say her name wrong, Mishima. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Well, she's been diagnosed with this since uh, as, a, as a child, and... I read your, you wrote an essay, and it's basically an explanatory essay on firesidefiction.com uh, mm-hmm. this year. And so I'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes. Yeah, there's a story and an essay. Right. There's a story about uh, Mishima's having this, the narrative disorder, and she's also a character in, in, um, in both books. But I, I found it a fascinating condition, largely because it, it really seems to build on something I mean, that's occurring today. I mean, you're, you're basically, you say it has two, um, two primary symptoms, narrative addiction and mm-hmm. narrative perception. And narrative addiction sounds an awful lot like you know, <laughs> Netflix binge watching or you know, basically, you know, just sitting on your smartphone while you're on the train or waiting or even at dinner, everyone's got their phone sitting out. And I just thought maybe you could talk a little bit about like, what is it? It, it, you, another uh, interesting thing, a point you make is that it has strengths and weaknesses. I mean, for, for Mishima, it helps her solve problems, but it maybe also gets her muddled sometimes. Yes. And, you know, I should be clear, too, that narrative disorder is not something new. It's been going on for a long time. And we, we know this, for example, through the story of El Quixote. Um, we can kind of pick it out through other things that have gone on that we see in the past. and um, But as with many other um, mental disorders or conditions, um, there are things in the context, in the societal context, that make it suddenly seem to, that make it seem appropriate to call this a, a mental condition, um, when before it was just part of how people were. And certainly, you know, the technology and, and our lifestyles have enabled us to consume more con- and content. And one of the ways I started thinking about this, one of the triggers for this, um, was that, you know, I, I certainly consume a lot of content, um, from Netflix binging to, you know, my overdrive queue and from the library to just going on, um, Amazon binges when there's a Kindle sale and so on. Uh, I read a lot. I don't watch a ton of TV, but I watch some, um, and I'm just very aware of myself that when I need some, uh, some time to recharge or regenerate. I need a narrative, some some other narrative, um, and I and I find this very interesting. And I and one of the things is, you know, for me at least, there's certain kind of quality bars that you know I need for a narrative to really hook me and to really give me that escapism. And I was interested, you know, I'm interested watching it how uh, Hollywood on the one hand and how publishing houses and how other purveyors of content try to hit that sweet spot and try to um, replicate different kinds of content in ways that will make them money. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're often dealing with the same stories over and over again. We have sequels, we have reboots. Um, and so, you know, it seems to me that there's this incredible hunger for content. You know, people have hundreds of channels now on their televisions, and then there's YouTube, and then there's Netflix. 
Um, and then, you know, the number of movies that come out and the number of books that exist in the world now that our great, 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 great ancestors couldn't have imagined. Uh, and yet, and yet I'm still always looking, you know, I'm asking for recommendations and I'm looking for something good. And so, you know, it seems to me that as we move into the future, content creation and the, the ways that content uh, is created are, is going to be a really important sort of industry. And it can be looked at in a very different way than it is now. <clears throat> and, you know, that, that brings me to the thinking about addiction. And then the, the, the other, the flip side of it, which you mentioned, which is that, um, you know, again, has to do with quality and again, has to do with replication. As we see certain tropes um, and certain ideas, and they can be sort of big ideas like, you know, the truth will set you free and you have to tell the girl you love her and that will make everything right in the end. And, uh, you know, tell your parents about that thing they did once that made you really angry and then everyone will cry. And after that, everything will feel better. Or they can also be sort of smaller, more superficial things such as, you know, there are certain character actors that because of the way they look, they get the same types of parts over and over again. Right. And so then with all of these things, as we ingest them over and over again, we start to believe that they're true, that accountants look like that and bad guys look like this. Um, and it's a very hard thing to fight. You can know about it intellectually, but it can still be hard to fight that if you are seeing consistently version after version of this same trope um, well, through probably, many you, different media. Or you only mm -hmm. need to see it once. I mean, after I saw Jaws, it's like, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't like to go on the ocean. And I, you know what, I saw it like 40 years ago or something. So <laughs> certainly, yes, there's some that, that make their point and that's it. Um, but, you know, I think because of this hunger for content, because content and because of this inclination on the part of large producers to try and kind of save money and do again and again, the thing that worked in the sense of making them a lot of money. Um, you know, you do see things being repeated in sort of slightly different variations. And I really think that that affects how we experience the world. Um, it's, you know, there are theories that say that our um, consciousness and awareness comes from narrative and comes from, uh, you know, early humans or hominids coming up with narratives to figure out plans to say, you know, this is how we're going to hunt. This is um, how we're going to pack up our stuff and move to the next area that we're going to. And so because of that, I think narrative has a really important hook in our brains in terms of, of helping us understand and interpret the world. And so it's, it's dangerous when we put that hook in the hands of some content creators that are, you know, maybe not so interested in, they have certain values and a lot of that just has to do with making profit and uh, they're not maybe interested. I mean, we see this fight with the fight over diversity, um, the importance of representation uh, in, in media. And so I think it's, it's something that it's really important for us to be aware of and as creators, certainly to be very aware of and as consumers to be aware of and, and to, to, you know, try to think through and, and, you know, one thing that has helped me with that is, is the travel and being in different places because narrative, the way narrative is used and the kinds of content that are created are very different in different cultures, um, which is really helpful for remembering that the tropes that are presented in our media as universal and human and, uh, you know, love conquers all, blah, blah, blah. These things are not the same in other places. 
Um, and so they are variable and that's not the way that all stories have to go. And we can write new stories. Well, great. And that's what you're doing because you have uh, Null States coming out this month. And and are you planning a third book? Is that, And will that be the final book? I just finished the third book oh. uh, last night, very late. Get out. Congratulations. <laughs> Wait, you <laughs> say finished? So, you finished a complete draft? I finished a complete draft. There's, there'll, there'll be some editing, but it's expected to come out next year around this the same time, um, about a year after Null States. So... That should be great. Fantastic. Wow. That's, that's, that's wonderful. So is there room in your brain yet for what comes next? Um, I think we're, we're looking at taking at least a pause on the Sentinel cycle for now. I am someone who doesn't really plan ahead with any kind of definitiveness. So I, I'm not going to say that it's over, but for the moment, I'm, I, I have some other projects that I'm, I'm working on and excited about. And I think, you know, three is a good number to kind of pause at it. Well, congratulations on all your books and in their various stages of publication, your second one about to come out and your third one having just taken final shape. I feel like I was just, uh, it's the day after your the, the birth and you're already up and about doing interviews. I'm very impressed. Well, thank you. Um, and thanks for the, the great questions. Uh, you're welcome. And thanks for the great answers. I've been talking to Malka Older, author of The Sentinel Cycle, which starts with Infomocracy. The second installment, Null States, is out this month, September 2017, from Tor. You can find more author interviews on the Science Fiction Channel on the New Books Network. That's uh, newbooksnetwork.com. Or on uh, iTunes and uh, other podcasting services. Uh, our theme music is by Michael Aaron. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe and The Escape. And you can find me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Thanks so much for listening.